Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down and turns the tables on Hall of Fame announcer Marty Brenneman, the legendary voice of the Cincinnati Reds. And this one belongs to the Reds! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Marty Brenneman. You finally quit. They finally got you. Whose balls are you going to bust? And how crazy are you going to drive, Amanda? Do you know do you know that you're one of a majority of, of, of either uh, primarily player, current players that said the same thing? Thank God you finally decided to walk away. We never thought it would happen. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I know I'm, I'm very – I'm flying under the radar now, Brett. I have uh, nobody's to bust and um, – you know, just uh, enjoying retirement. Uh, I never have never regretted. I've never looked back, and uh, I made the decision at the right time in my life. And on a serious note, when uh, you know, when when Joe, my partner for 31 years, Joe Nuxall retired, he was physically unable to do a lot of the things that uh, he had, he wanted to do. And I made a pact with myself then that that would never happen to me. That I, I would retire when I still had my help um, and I could go and do what I wanted to do when I wanted to do it without being concerned about uh, am I physically able to do that. So that that was the single biggest factor in my decision. I could have continued working and I think I went out while I was still on top of my game. I think I went out when I went out on my own terms and there's not a lot of guys in my business that get a chance to do that. So in that respect, I was blessed, and I have thoroughly enjoyed retirement since uh, the 26th of September in 19, uh, 2019. Well, I want to go back all the way to the beginning, if you can remember that long ago. Uh, for I'm those of you listen, yeah, for those of you listening to the Boone Podcast, Marty started in 1974, close to 50 years in the industry. And uh, you started with the Tidewater tide, Tides in the uh, early 70s. And you go from AAA baseball, calling AAA baseball games, to to arguably one of the greatest uh, teams of all times, the 70s Reds uh, for that decade. You go to the Reds in uh, 74, and how did how did that come to be? Well, you know, it was really interesting because uh, I, I had moved to Virginia, which was where I was born and raised, because they got – uh, they got an ABA franchise in the old American Basketball Association. They they had been based in Washington, D.C., and, and the owner of that team, Earl Foreman, moved it out of Washington and into Virginia, and it became a regional franchise playing in, in Norfolk and Richmond and Roanoke and, and Hampton. Um, and they were looking for someone that had some type of local tie to that area. Well, I was I was born and raised there and went through school, high school, all the way through high school, in that area, and and my dad had a guy call on him to try and sell him advertising. He was manager of a pet milk company, and and uh, the, the guy happened to mention that they were looking for a guy, and he said, "Well, my son's down in North Carolina, a small radio station broadcasting every sport imaginable." And they said, "Well, we'll take a look at him." And I got that job, so I did the ABA, and and after the first season, they were looking for something for me to do, and. And uh, I ended up getting to do the Tidewater games in the International League. And I did those for three years. And 
Still was wrapped up in pro basketball. I, uh, I, I really enjoyed it when I was doing the games. And, and uh, then Al Michaels decided to leave Cincinnati after 2000, after uh, 1973. And he moved on to the San Francisco Giants and, and they needed somebody to replace him to work alongside Joe. And uh, oh, just for a chance meeting uh, between Dave Rosenfield, who was the general manager of the Tidewater Club and, and Dick Wagner, who was the at that time the assistant general manager, they met at the winter meetings in Houston, Texas in November of 73, and just a chance meeting. I mean, there was nothing premeditated about it. And, of course, the conversation, Dick said, we're looking for somebody to replace Al Michaels. And Dave said, I got a guy who does my games who I think does a pretty good job. And uh, Dick gave him the obligatory answer, telling him to send us a tape. So I did. And uh, really, I, I had at that point very little interest in it because I was so enamored with pro basketball and I only did it because Dave Rosenfield thought enough of my work to recommend me for a big league job well as time went by um, periodically I would get word from a buddy of mine who was traveling into Cincinnati from Norfolk because he was covering uh, minor league hockey and they both cities had teams in the same league and he would sniff around and he'd come back and he'd say, well, they've narrowed the list down to 50 and you're still on the list. And I didn't pay any attention. And then it was 20 and then it kind of piqued my interest a bit. And then I found out it was down to 10. And at that point I decided, you know, there may be something to this thing. So they gave me a call and uh, they said they want, uh, we'd like for you to come to Cincinnati and we'd like to interview you. And well, I had to be in Indianapolis to do a game against the Pacers on a on a, a Saturday night. So I flew into Cincinnati on Thursday, and uh, they wined and dined me. And and I, you know, I was born at night, but not last night. I knew what this deal was. This was an interview. And um, after a day of interviewing, and I had to leave that Friday night to go to Indianapolis. Uh, they sent me back to the hotel, and they said. Uh, we haven't quite made up our mind yet. We'll give you a call after you get back to Virginia Beach. And so I went back to the hotel and was packing my stuff up to leave. And I had been in the hotel room for 10 minutes. So I got a call back and they said, we've changed our minds. We've decided to offer you the job. So I went back to the ballpark. They made a pitch. I went home. I talked to my wife about it and, um, and took the job. And I uh, was uh, first day on the job was February 1st, 1974. And uh, it was really amazing because that, that was the furthest thing from my mind was to, to broadcast big league baseball. But it, it kind of worked out OK. And, you know, it's, uh, we, we speak to a lot of guys on this podcast, but I, I think you're as qualified. I mean, you've seen as many games as, as anybody, you know, we, like we said, starting in the early seventies to retiring in 2019. What's been your favorite. I don't know if it's the word I'm looking for is era. It, it probably is. What's your favorite era that you covered and how's the game changed from the start of Marty's Marty Brenneman's career to the end? Well, I mean, the game has changed incredibly. Um, you know, I heard I heard Al Michaels on the phone today because he he's the newest winner of the Ford Frick Award, and they asked him uh, they asked him about uh, you know has the game changed a lot? And he said, well, absolutely, because of analytics and 
Um, I don't think Al is quite as uh, upfront as I am about my feeling about the game today as opposed to where it was when I came in 74 and, and how stable it was uh, from 74 up until probably 10, 10 12 years ago. Um, the stolen base meant something. The hit and run meant something. Uh, guys going out with the intention of pitching nine innings meant something. Um, and, and that's the game that I was raised on. And, uh, I, you know, I'm an old guy, and uh, years ago I was around an old guy talking about how the game had changed, and I just privately blew him off. And I said, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well, fast forward now, and I'm that old guy, and, 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 and I feel the same way. Um, I don't like the game as much today as I did uh, when I came up. Um, I like a speed game. I like an emphasis on speed. Uh, I like seeing guys aggressively running the bases as opposed to uh, basically a station-to-station game now except for uh, the almighty three-run home run. Um, so, I, you know, uh, the game has changed a lot. Uh, from my perspective, it's not changed for the better. Uh, I know a lot of people disagree with that, and I understand that. I'm good for that. But in terms of an era, I don't know that there was any particular era. It was that time that I was talking about when I enjoyed watching the game played uh, the way it was supposed to be played. And when you had two clubs that played that way and, and, and took care of the ball and didn't make mistakes, uh, it, it was a thing of beauty. I, don't, I truly do not think it's a thing of beauty today because all they care about is home runs. Um, and that's, you know that's fine and good, and I know guys love to love to hit the home run. But I, I just I'm I'm not a big fan of the way the game is played today. But I uh, I like the players better when I came uh, in '74 and all the way through the decade of the '80s and the '90s and um, into the 2000s. Um, but you know when you're around as long as I was around, you're going to see change and. And I'm not opposed to change. Uh, some of the things that baseball implemented uh, this past summer uh, because of the pandemic and, and uh, things that they felt were uh, radically different, but the type of things that might appeal to fans, uh, I, I, I agreed with. Um, I've, I've been a major opponent of the DH. I realize now that the DH is inevitable with, for both leagues and, uh, if I were still around actively working today, I would not be critical of that because I understand that that's something it may not be in effect come 2021, but I think eventually it will be consistent in both leagues. I like the rule putting a runner at second base in extra innings um, with nobody out to begin the inning. I like that. Uh, I think there's far more strategy involved on the part of both sides then people are willing to give it credit for. So I'm not I'm not a I'm not a, a guy that's got my head in the sand and, and don't expect to see any change on a hundred years from now the game will be the same as it is tonight or today when we're talking. Uh uh but but at the same time I would like to see the pendulum get back a little bit closer to the middle where uh the emphasis on analytics was a little bit less and the emphasis on uh playing the game the way it was supposed to be played would become a little bit more prominent. I want to, I want to jump to uh, 
I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to, I'm going to give you five names through your career that, that uh, all these guys you're going to okay. know quite well. And I just want you to give me a br- brief description um, that describes them best to Marty Brennan. We're going to start with Pete Rose. Well, one of my dear friends in the game of baseball, I'm very prejudiced when I talk about him. I know what his warts are. I know the mistakes he's made. I buy into all of that. And he does too. Um, I think it's, it's criminal that he's not in baseball's Hall of Fame. Uh, as I've said a million times before, we are supposed to be in the most forgiving country on earth and have always been. I mean, if we can, we can uh, give the president of the United States a pass for having sex in the White House and we can't let Pete Rose in the Hall of Fame, I think there's a problem with that. Uh, I think in, 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 in a great sense, it's very hypocritical because you can hardly go through Cooperstown without seeing some mention of Pete Rose. Well, it's important to the Baseball Hall of Fame to promote the grand things that Pete Rose did on the field because it promotes the grand game of baseball. Yet, on the other side of the coin, he's not allowed to be in there. And, and I got a problem with that. And I think the biggest, the most gross injustice of all time will be when he goes into the Hall of Fame, which I fervently believe will happen one day, but I don't think it'll happen until after he's left us. And I think that will be the greatest injustice of all. Um, I admire the fact that he's a, he's a hit king, but he's also going to be, he's also honest enough to say, I've never said I was the greatest hitter in the game. I've always said I'm the guy with the most hits. And, and I respect that. Um, I love the way he played the game. I love the, the passion in which he played it. I love the fact that he helped young guys. Um, but again, like I said, I'm very, very prejudiced because I'm a big Pete fan. Okay, we're going to jump to Barry Larkin. Well, I think the epitome of what a big league ball player is all about. Um, and I think the, the greatest thing for our purposes was the fact that he, he was born and raised here. He comes from a great family. His mom and dad are great people. Uh, his brother Byron's a good buddy of mine. Uh, Mike, who was a captain of the football team at Notre Dame, and his sister, who they put through nursing school. Uh, it was, it's just a very, very classy family. And for uh, the, the gods up above to determine uh, that there will be a way one day when he will play for his hometown team and he will become a Hall of Fame player with that team and never play anywhere else. Uh, I, I just think that it, it's a storybook uh, uh, history as far as Barry is concerned. Um, you know, he, he was an outstanding football player at Moeller High School and goes to Michigan to play baseball. And Bo Schembechler tried to talk him into coming to play football. And, and Barry was, you know, Barry was serious about the game of baseball. And they say Bo used to come to baseball games and yell at him, uh, and try to embarrass him into coming out to play football. And it never happened. And thank God for that. Um, uh, he, he's, uh, he, and it was fun to watch. I mean, he could, he could play now. There was any question about that. And, he was surrounded by good players, yourself being one of them. Um, and I think the guys that played with him uh, to a man would echo the same sentiments that, that we've just talked about here because uh, he had no weakness. Um, he, he was just an all-around great player. Johnny Bench. All right, I want you to listen carefully to what I say now. 
because I, the, my, my line is the people don't listen. You hear people say, I listen, but no, you don't. You don't listen. Uh, he's the greatest player at a given position in the history of the game. The greatest player at a given position in the history of the game. And people say, when I speak to groups, not the greatest player in the game. I said, that's not what I said, clown. I said, at a given <laughs> position. I just use that for your purpose. I love it. You've got, yeah, he, always, he, it's a footnote. That's, that's Mr. Boone's line. That's Mr. Boone's line that I've, I've used eloquently over the years. In fact, I've used it on the radio at times. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he revolutionized the way the position was played. Uh, he came to the big leagues. I think he was still a teenager in the late eighties, uh, late sixties when they brought him up. And from day one, he, he, he was in charge. Uh, he would be on the receiving end of some very good pitchers, Jim Maloney being one of them. And, and Jim's a dear friend of mine, uh, lives in Fresno and, and he will tell stories of how bench would take over a ball game. And he's still wet behind the ears, but he was so assertive and so confident in his ability to call a game and deal psychologically with a pitcher in the middle of a comeback by the other team that he won everybody over. And uh, he had the greatest flair for the dramatic, uh, I think, of any player I've ever seen in terms of getting a big hit at a time in which the team needed it. And uh, I really believe that Johnny retired before his time, and I think he retired because he was sick of losing. Uh, he had been a vital part of the Big Red Machine, but then in the early 80s, this team fell on hard times. And for a couple of years, if they weren't the worst, if it wasn't the worst team in baseball, it was awfully close. And I just think he got tired of getting beat on a regular basis, and he felt like it was time to go. And and I respected that because for a guy that was on arguably one of the top two or three teams in the history of baseball and to have to go through getting beat every night, I just think it got too much for him. And he's another guy who, uh, in terms of retiring, uh, I don't think he ever looked back. I think he, he quit and he knew he wanted to quit and he knew he had other things he wanted to do. And, um, and, and I respected the fact that uh, he, he never regretted making the decision to walk away from the game. When the last two guys are, you know, they passed away recently, but but huge, they left huge uh, and huge hole and and uh, just great players. First one is Jill Morgan. Well, he he and Pete were two of the best, the best friends I had in the game. Um, uh, we had a lot of good times together when they played. Uh, we, we'd have dinner together on the road with the club, had a night off, and. Um, he was the smartest player that I've ever been around in, in terms of having the versatility to do anything. He could have been commissioner of the game of baseball. He could have been a manager. He could have been a general manager. He was an outstanding broadcaster. He was a Hall of Fame player. Uh, in his years when Bud Selig was commissioner of the game, no one had Bud's ear like Joe did. Um, and, and, and Bud respected Joe Morgan and respected – his opinion on a multitude of, of subjects. And so when Joe spoke, Bud listened. Um, I, I'll never forget the day he passed away. I, I was at the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia. 
Amanda and I were there with a group of people and we were playing golf and uh, we were in the middle of the golf course and I had to use her men's room and I came out of it and she said, I got bad news for you. And I said, what's that? And she said, Joe Morgan passed away. And uh, she said, your phone's going to blow up. And, and I looked at my phone and I'd gotten two calls from Teresa, his wife. And I called her immediately. And as soon as she heard who it was, she started crying. And she told me about the last hours leading up to his passing. And uh, she made the comment. She said, he loved you so much because you made him laugh. And we had a lot of laughs. Um, I, uh, I, 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 I'm honored to tell people that Joe Morgan was my friend and, and Pete was my friend. And, um, we just had an incredible relationship and, uh, I know people miss him, but boy, I guarantee you nobody misses him any more than I do. And the last one is Tom Seaver. Well, Tom Seaver was a trip now, uh, you know, Tom had an image of uh, being buttoned up, and, and it, they couldn't have been further from the truth. Tom was a practical joker. Tom was funny. Tom was everything that his image did not dictate that he was because he was a good-looking guy. He was extremely articulate uh, about everything. I mean, he could talk about a multitude of topics unrelated to the game of baseball. Uh, he kept up on world affairs and he read a lot. And, um, you know, I knew Tom from the days that I was doing triple a baseball because uh, the Mets would come down to Norfolk and, uh, play the tides every year in an exhibition game that made a lot of money for the triple a club. And, and he would come down with a team and I, I met him in probably 1971. And then of course he came to the Reds in the late seventies and, um, he would. He was a totally different person on the days that he didn't pitch, but on the day he pitched, he would sit in his locker and he would uh, do the New York Times crossword puzzle. And you did not mess with him that day. Uh, you might speak to him when you came into the clubhouse and say, Tom, how are you? He'd give you a one-word answer. He was as serious as serious could be because, as he would say, that's the day I work. Um I learned so much about pitching from him. Uh, he said to me one day, he said, tell me the three most important things uh, that go into make up a, making up a good pitcher. I said, well, uh, location, uh, velocity, and movement. He said, you got all three of them, right? He said, now rank them in terms of importance. I said, velocity, number one. He said, you fail a damn test. You just lost miserably. And then he went on to explain that as far as he was concerned, location was one, movement was two, and velocity was third. Um, he could teach you a lot about pitching if you'd listen to him because he could articulate it in such a manner that that people could understand it. Uh, Amanda and I had dinner with he, he and Nancy and another couple up in Calistoga, uh, California, where he had his winery. And that in and of itself was a a fulfillment of a dream because that's all he ever wanted to do. Even the years in which he was winning Cy Young awards and was recognized as the best pitcher in the game. All he wanted to do was one day uh, buy a plot of land in Northern California, uh, grow grapes and produce wine. And he was able to do that and produce a damn good wine. Uh, GTS is the name of the wine, George Thomas Seaver. 
and we had dinner with him and, and, uh, he was the same old Tom. He was funny. He, he was glib. Um, but then, you know, he got sick and, and I don't think he ever really recovered from it. He, 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 um, he passed away very quietly. His wife, Nancy was very protective of him. And she would allow only certain people to come see him when he, uh, he had a, he had a dementia problem and, and she was very protective of him. And, um, he was just, uh, I, I was lucky. I was around great players and, uh, and developed great friendships with, with, of course, the, the two that I mentioned earlier, but uh, I felt like Tom was a friend and, uh, he, uh, we all, we had a lot of laughs together and, and I was privileged to watch him pitch because when he came here, he was still a dominant pitcher, um, and, and, and showed that. And I, I think everybody felt when they made the deal for him, that that was the thing that was going to put this club over the hump in the late seventies. And they did get to the postseason in 79, but Pittsburgh beat them in the playoffs on their way to winning a world championship. But uh, it was it it was it was uh, quite something to be associated with him as as a lot of us were after he became a Cincinnati Red. There's two things when I think of Marty Brenneman. Uh, two lines, I guess, or, or or I don't know. Two things come to mind. First one is this one belongs to the Reds. Where did that come from? Well, every day I hear it to this day and I, and I think about you, well, we'll get to, we'll get to the second thing a little bit later, but this one belongs to okay. the Reds. How did it come to be? Well, the first thing, let me say this about at that. The biggest mistake I ever made was not getting it copyrighted because some people made a lot of money off that thing, putting it on t-shirts and all that kind of stuff. And I never even thought about it. I, um, uh, I, uh, it, I guess it was like the first, maybe two weeks into my first season in 74. And, uh, Dave Concepcion got a base hit in the bottom of the ninth or the bottom of an extra inning at Riverfront. And it just came out. There was no premeditation on my part. I didn't plan it. Uh, it just came out. And as I drove home that night, I thought, you know, that might be a good thing to use. Every time they won, having no idea that over the next three or four years, they would win as much as they did. And it caught on quick uh, as far as the fans were concerned, because I said it so much. And the funny thing was that there were times when something would happen that so shocked me that ended the game with a Reds win that I would fail to say it. Um, I, I remember years ago when Ryan Friel, God rest his soul, was playing um, center field uh, in a game against the uh, St. Louis Cardinals at Great American Ballpark. And they had two men on base and, and um, there were two outs in the ninth. And uh, I think the runners were second and third and Albert Pujols was hitting. And Friel was shading him toward left center just a little bit to pull the ball. And he had a rocket into the gap in right center field. And I, and it seemed like Ryan ran for an hour and a half. And it, it timed his jump, went flat out and, and caught the ball and fell face down on the warning track in right center. The game was over. And I was stunned. Uh, I, I, there was no way on God's earth he could make that catch. And I forgot to say it. And people were raising hell. Um, 
you know, is he not going to say it anymore? What, what was the problem? And that, that happened maybe, I don't know, maybe two dozen times in 46 years. I might, something like that occurred and I'd forget to say it. Uh, the first time it happened when the, the reaction of the fan, when my, when I started saying it in 74 made me realize that, you know, this is, this is something that, um, I can do every time they win. Uh, a lot of guys have home run calls. I've had guys ask me, what's your signature home run call? And I, I'd say, I don't have one. And they said, what? And they look at me like I have two heads. You've got to have a, a signature home run call. And my response was, the hell I do. No, I don't. I can say whatever I want to say. I don't need a, a signature home run call, and I never had one. Um, but as I said, I wish I'd have gotten a copyrighted. That's the only thing. But if I don't, if I have the only legacy I have after I'm gone will be people remember that, and that that's that's uh, that's good enough for me. Move on to a, a topic that I know is near and dear to your heart. Uh, Anybody that ever came in contact with this man couldn't help but love him. And it was the Marty and Joe show for, for 30 some odd years. Uh, wow. Just speak to that relationship. What, what an awesome duo. And by the way, I used to tease Marty all the time and, and say, <laughs> you, know, you know, Nuxie carries your ass, don't you, Marty? Without him, he was the buffer, you know, because because Marty sometimes would would be pretty critical. And Joe was up there now, Marty, and I can't. I I still remember Marty sitting in that in that back room in in Riverfront, and I always knew if if Nuxie's looking at me, giving me that uh, head nod, like "Come on, Booney." come do the post game. I knew I had a good game when Nuxie was chasing me down. And I used to, we'd sit on an old trunk and, and I'd mess with him. He'd be trying to get his tape recorder rolling right. And, and sometimes (laughs) he couldn't, and I'd make a mistake on purpose. So we had to rewind it back. And uh, what an awesome, awesome guy. You were as close as anybody with him. Uh, Tell me about the Marty and Marty and Joe for all those years. Well, you know, we met for the first time on February 1st, 1974, a photography studio in Dayton, Ohio, because um, I was in the, uh, well, that was day one. The first day I was on the payroll and the Reds had their caravan in the wintertime and they, they had me on it that year because they wanted me to get around to as many media people as I could before I left to go to Tampa for spring training. And um, so Joe and I met that night to have a publicity show taken individually and together. And uh, the first thing I ever said to him was, I have your baseball card. And I did. I had a number of them. I have, I think I have almost every card that uh, Joe was ever on uh, in the years in which we were together. And uh, we are both, we were both, both left-handed. He, um, we really got close. We got closer and closer and closer and, and and it became such a team. Uh, neither one of us looked at it as an individual thing. It was always Marty and Joe, and it was always Marty and Joe because it rhymed on Red's radio. It couldn't have been Joe and Marty because that didn't rhyme. So somebody said Marty and Joe on Red's radio, and that's the way it was. And um, we, uh, when I started to play golf, is when it really our relationship amped up big time because we. We'd uh, we'd go on the road and and uh, we'd go to we we'd get up at six or six thirty in the morning, 
and we uh if we had a rental car or we sometimes we even take a cab to a golf course and had it all set up to play and we more often than not we'd be the first out of the gate and as a result, we'd be back at the hotel by 11 o'clock, 11.30. Joe would take his power nap, and then we'd go to the ballpark. And we played all over the league. Um, I, I vividly remember, uh, because of, of, of your benevolence, that uh, we played at Pelican Hill uh, one year. Uh, I, I guess we, were play, we, we weren't playing. Uh, we might have been playing the Angels. I don't even know then was it, whether it was uh, – interleague player, whether we play, we're playing the Dodgers and we went out and played at Pelican Hill. And, um, so, and there, and we were, we were so in tune with each other that I could end a, I could stop a sentence in the middle of it and Joe could finish it and vice versa. And, uh, we were together 31 years and that equaled the longest that, any tandem has ever done major league baseball on radio. And that other group was Vin Scully and Jerry Doggett with a, with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And, uh, we, we just, it, it was just an unbelievable relationship that, you know, this is a town that, uh, produced Pete, uh, produced Oscar Robertson, one of the five greatest players probably in the history of the game of basketball. Uh, no, no, no bigger icon in this town than Joe was. I mean, he was born and raised here for those who don't know. Um, and he was a hero to people and, and he was so wrapped up in young people and making sure that money was allocated for kids to go to college who could not afford it, that he started his own foundation, had his own golf tournament to raise money for kids in Butler County, which is a county outside of Cincinnati where Joe's lived his entire life. And then he started to deal with uh, special interest kids. And they have built a complex out in, uh, in uh, Hamilton, Ohio, Fairfield, Ohio, where Joe lived. That's just unbelievable for special needs kids. Uh, and a lot of the credit for that has gone to Joe's son, Kim and, and Kim's white body who had perpetuated Joe's legacy. It's, he, he was just the most, uh, outside of my dad, the most special man that I've ever known and the most beloved man that I'd ever known in any community. I never heard a person ever utter one wrong word about Joe Nuxall. Uh, and that was simply the kind of person he was. Let's talk about your pants, Marty. He's tired, God, tired. Sands about for, for those. No, for those people listening right now. Okay, <laughs> I said I said Marty's famous for two things. One was this one belongs to the Reds every time we'd win a game. The second are these tired pants that he used to wear. Now they were famous <laughs> in the seventies. If you if if you if you're out there and you're googling and you're looking for Sansa belts, you'll see the big red machine. Every one of them's wearing these babies. Pete was famous for them. I remember in Philly That's when right. Pete came over to. He came over to the to the Phillies when I was a kid, played with dad, and they won the 80s World Series. Pete was rocking those sands belts. That's how I knew what they were when me and you met. But Marty wore these sands belts, and I gave him the hardest time. And I and I hear, I hear you got rid of them, but I hear you saved one pair for when me and you cross paths again. I want those. They're, they're going in my trophy room. Tell me about the sands belts. Brett Boone specials is what they are. I, well, you, hey, listen, 
we had a deal in LA in the garment district and we'd go out there and the guy would let us come in there and, and we'd buy, you know, we'd buy those pants and uh, for next to nothing. Um, uh, and so, you know, they, and especially if you were a little guy and you look good in your clothes, uh, not built like a fire hydrant, like you were, um, but slim <laughs> and those pants were, I mean, they were really, uh, you know, they were very attractive. People uh, took notice of them. So I, I can tell you that in the ensuing years since you left here and went on to bigger and better things with the Mariners and so forth, <laughs> I've graduated to I've graduated to very expensive jeans. But that's all I wear now. I don't wear it. I don't put on a coat and tie. I get up and pair, put on jeans every morning, and nobody's happier than I am. <laughs> um. <laughs> You know, there's only one Marty Brennan. I mean, I, I've been pretty lucky in my time to have some some pretty world class uh, guys call calling games for the teams I was on. Um, and one thing we do as players is is we watch a lot of baseball. I know, you know, in between at bats, I'm up in the clubhouse watching the pitcher and his tendencies. But the volume's always on, and we can always hear what the announcers say. And believe me, we hear everything. Yeah. And this is one thing I've always kept with me because you were one of my first, you know, uh, in Cincinnati. And Marty had a way of being pretty critical, fair, uh, professional, but critical. I, I always took on the, the the assumption, you know, I knew what I was signing up for and being a major league baseball player. And and there's going to be times when you're not playing well, you're going to deserve some criticism. And there's going to be times where you're playing great and you're going to get a lot of praise and you got to roll with it. And I always thought as long as people are fair to me, I deserve to be critiqued when I need to be critiqued. But Marty, he, he, it seems like other, other announcers, when they got too critical, you wouldn't see them in the clubhouse. They, they wouldn't show up. They would, they would duck and dodge the players because they didn't want to have that face-to-face. Marty Brenneman, and I always respected this about you. If, you, if you heard through the grapevine that somebody had a problem with something you would say, you would march right to the front door of that clubhouse and go walk right up to the, whoever had the problem and said, you got a problem? Let's talk about it. Uh, what, made you, what, what, what made you that way? When did you make, did you, was it a conscious decision? Like I'm going to own what I say. I'm not going to ever dodge it. Just talk a little bit about that being up front and hitting everything head on. Well, Brett, I, it was just what you said. I, I felt like if I was going to be, and I had a saying, you know, if I'm going to praise you when you play well, I, I reserve the right to be critical when you don't. And, and, and I, but I also felt, that if you're going to level criticism, uh, then you have to be man enough to walk down the middle of that clubhouse the next day. Uh, so if somebody has something that they want to get off their chest, they don't have to come looking for you. Uh, there's a saying in, in my profession about guys who hide behind the microphone. And that is just what you said a moment ago. They will say things knowing that they don't have to come down there and face the players. The, the guys that drive me crazy are the guys that do talk radio or talk TV. You never see their ass at the ballpark. So they're free to say whatever they want to say uh, because they know that they don't have to deal with a confrontation. And I, I, I truly don't believe that players have a great deal of respect for guys uh, that, that conduct their business that way. 
uh, whether a guy agreed with me or not. I, I never forget. I had an art, uh, a very mild conversation in the middle of the clubhouse at Riverfront one day with Eric Davis. So the night before in a game in which the Reds were behind two to one, let off the bottom of the ninth inning and hit a screamer down the right field line and had uh, the mindset that he was going to go to second. And he never broke stride rounding first, and the right fielder got over and cut the ball off and it spun and threw him out. And I was very critical of him. And uh, they ended up losing the game 2-1. to one. And so he came up to me in the clubhouse very quietly the next day and said, you and I need to talk. And I said, that's fine. He said, I don't agree with what you said last night. And I said, well, I don't agree with what you did. Uh, I don't think you can be thrown out leading off an inning like that. And we went back and forth again very quietly. And finally, I said, look, you know, you're never going to agree with me. I'm never going to agree with you. Let's turn the page. And that's what we did. And the next day, it was just like nothing ever happened. Uh, There are other players that were not that easy to deal with. But I still felt that if I'm going to say the things that I feel like I need to say, then I have to be man enough to go down there. And if, if if there's music to be faced, then I'll face the music. And and I, I, there were times when I was wrong, um, and there was a great sportscaster years and years and years ago by the name of Jim Simpson, who did everything big on network television, and he he said something one day that stuck with me as a young broadcaster before I ever got Cincinnati. He said the biggest mistake that we can make is not correcting one. And I remember a night at Shea Stadium when George Foster was in left field and and, uh, he screwed up a fly ball and uh, he threw to a wrong base. And uh, I was critical as hell about his play that night. Found out after the game that he was out there with a 102-degree temperature. And Sparky wanted to sit him down and not play, but George uh, refused to sit down and went out and played. And I went on the air the next night, and I apologized because I, I had not had all the information. Uh, had I known that he was out there playing sick, I would have never said the things that I said. So, um, you know, people come up to me all the time and said, you know, we really appreciate the fact because you told you told you would tell it like it is. I said no. I said I would tell it like I thought it was. There's a difference, and 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 that covers the probability that there are going to be times when I make a mistake. And if I make a mistake, I'm going to apologize for it. But, um, you know, I was lucky that I worked for people that allowed me to, to broadcast the game the way I felt it needed to be broadcast. And, and the road I took was the road of the most resistance because so many guys in my profession, whether it be big league ball or NBA basketball or NFL football or whatever the case might be, they want the players to like them. And I really did not care whether they liked me or not. Uh, I wanted them to respect the job that I had to do because I respected the job that they had to do. Uh, People were critical of me if I had a bad game. And and I didn't see any reason why I I needed to soft sell something that they did if they made a mistake uh, at a critical time. And so, you know, but the ownerships that I worked under allowed me to do my job and 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 uh, I think that more than anything was the reason why I was able to hang around for 46 years. Talk about your peers a little bit, the guys in the game, the great announcers in the game. Who who were some of your favorites? 
Well, I think any list of broadcasters in baseball, you have to start with Ben Scully because I think he was the greatest that's ever lived. And I don't think if this game is played for another thousand years, I don't think there will be another broadcaster as good as Ben Scully. Um, uh, I'm always uh, find it humorous when current broadcasters are not willing to make that concession. Um, and I don't know whether it's an ego thing or what, but anybody who uh, labors under the delusion, I don't care how successful they have been, uh, that they are the equal of Ben Scully as a baseball broadcaster. They're delusional. They're kidding themselves. Um, uh, and so it starts with him, and and uh, and to enhance that, he 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 he's such a great person. He is almost completely without any ego, and this is a guy who daily is told by people when he's out and about, "You're the greatest baseball broadcaster who ever lived," and it's never affected him. He's a friendly guy. He's a warm person. Um, there were times when I almost felt like he was a mentor to me because. I would ask him for advice, and he was never reluctant to give it. Um, there are guys today that, and you know, the old school guys, uh, and I, and Vinny is is in that classification. But guys like Jack Buck at St. Louis and Ernie Harwell in Detroit, um, Dick Enberg was a great baseball broadcaster when he and Don Drysdale did the Angels. Uh, there was never a better team uh, of broadcasters in baseball than those two guys were. Uh, and guys more recently, the guy that you played in front of for so many years and Dave Niehaus, who uh, is still today an icon in, in the great Northwest. Um, John Miller is San Francisco, who I'm very prejudiced because John's a dear friend of mine. The best TV tandem going today and has been for years is probably Dwayne Kuyper and Mike Kruko with the San Francisco Giants. Um but there are a lot of there are a lot of good broadcasters around. There are some guys that I don't think are big league caliber broadcasters, but they have jobs. So God bless them because they tricked somebody. I don't know who, but they did. Um, but you know the game has changed a lot in, in the broadcast booth, just like it it it's changed on the field because guys, there will never be another me. And I don't say that uh, egotistically. I mean in my style, there will never be another guy that will have the freedom to broadcast a baseball game with the attendant criticisms that I had. Uh, it just won't happen anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, generally speaking, the, the broadcast industry at the big league level is in pretty good hands. And, uh, you know, a lot of young guys are coming into it now, but guys like Tom Hamilton in Cleveland and Pat Hughes in Chicago with the Cubs, uh, Len Casper, who just left, the Cubs TV booth to go to the Chicago White Sox radio booth. He was the guy that went the other way. Most guys want to leave radio and go to television because the money's better. Uh, Lenny wanted to go to radio and, and couldn't do it with the Cubs, so he's gone to broadcast the White Sox games. Uh, it, it's an interesting profession. It's a profession that keeps you young. And I think that more than anything is the most, it was the thing that was most appealing to me. And the fact that you can hang around uh, as long as you don't make the people that sign your paychecks mad enough to give you your walking papers, there's no age limit as to how long you can work. And I, I think that's kind of cool. Biggest moment. Uh, uh, that's tough. I, 
you know, I had so many great events that I was able to broadcast, uh, starting with, uh, you know, the big red machine teams in a general sort of way. And, and then, uh, in chronological order, Tom Seaver's only no hitter and, uh, Tom Browning's perfect game, uh, uh, each record breaking hit, uh, the, the 500 and 600th home runs for Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, these, these were all monumental events. And, and then I guess my favorite was my call was a home run that Jay Bruce hit off of the Houston Astros in 2010 or 12, whatever it was to send the Reds into the postseason. It was a game at great American ballpark that ended the game and, and, uh, sent them into the postseason. And, uh, Griffey's 500th home run was a favorite call of mine. Um, he hit it in, on Father's Day in St. Louis off Matt Morris, and um, it was really something of a time of reflection for me because I, you know, I first met Ken Griffey Jr. when he was underfoot in the clubhouse with uh, his old man playing with the guys on the Big Red Machine team, and people would shoo him away and say, "Get the hell out of here!" You know, guys are trying to get ready to play baseball, and and fast forward to a time in which he was the greatest player in the game. Um, uh, when he hit his 500th home run, he came to me, he had 498 and he said, we need to talk. And I said, okay. He said, I want you to do my 500th home run. And I said, well, he said, you know, you've known me since I was a kid and it would just mean a lot to me if, um, if you broadcast it on the radio. And I said, well, I will, as long as it's not in the third, fourth or seventh inning. And he said, well, why is that? A problem. I said, well, that's when the other guy, Steve Stewart's doing the play by play. And he said, well, you don't understand. I, I have to have you do that. If, if it comes in one of those innings and I would expect you to do it, I said, no, you don't understand. I, I don't have the kind of ego where I'm going to take that away from somebody else when it's their inning. Well, we went back and forth and finally it went to the front office, uh, Phil Castellini, who's a, the son of the owner and is a chief operating officer. Uh, he, we sat down with junior and, I, we finally got it settled. And the only way that happened was, uh, if the club would put out a press release saying that this was his wish and that I would have each of his at bats until he broke the record, no matter what inning it might come in. And as uh, fortunately for me, and it came in an inning in which I was broadcasting any, anyway. And, um, as I said, it was on father's day and senior was there and, uh, Junior's wife and the kids were there. It, it was a special thing. It really was, and I was thrilled to death to be able to broadcast it. We got Marty Brenneman, Reds Hall of Fame, Radio Hall of Fame, Frick Award winner, Baseball Hall. That's a lot of Hall of Fames. And, you know, we've had a, a – a lot of guys on the Boone podcast that are Hall of Famers, and and I like to ask them this one question: Is did you expect it? And for a man that talks for a living, makes speeches for a living, take me through that day. I, I guess take me through the whole process. Take me through the day you got the phone call, and was that speech different than probably a thousand other speeches you've made throughout your career? Well, the funny thing is I found out uh, that the year before, which would have been 1999, um, I had lost out by one vote 
And I wasn't supposed to know that. And I, and I, and I didn't, it's not the kind of thing that I sought out. I was told that. And I wish I had not been told that. Um, because I figured, you know, if you came within one vote, you got a real chance the next year. And, and periodically I'd think about it and then it would go away and I'd go about my business. And uh, two days before the announcement was forthcoming, I got a call from Rob Butcher, who was a Reds Media Relations director and still is. And he said, um, I've been instructed by the Hall of Fame to call you and find out where you're going to be on a Tuesday or Monday, whatever it was, at 11 a.m. because that's the day that um, whoever wins the Frick Award is going to be called directly by Dale Petrosky, who was the president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And he said, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm one of a number of guys in my position with other clubs to call announcers who may well be in line to win the award, too. Uh, we don't want to have to scurry around trying to find out where you are or where the winner was, whoever it might be. And I said, yeah, I'll be home. And so uh, 11 o'clock that morning rolled around and my phone rang and I answered it. And the voice at the other end said, Marty Bremen. I said, yes. He said, this is Dale Petrosky, the president of the Baseball Hall of Fame. And that's, I didn't remember anything else he said. I mean, I, he certainly wasn't calling to find out how my day was going. Um, and, and so it all began that day. And, um, you know, you, you hear from people and I, Johnny Bench called me earlier and said, uh, do yourself a favor, get a legal pad and write down all the people you hear from, whether it's today, tomorrow, next week, next month, two months from now, whatever it is, because they're the people that care about you. He said, guys that don't think you should win the award, people that for whatever the reason, are not fans of yours. They're not going to take the time to co- congratulate you because they don't like you. And he was right. I did that. Well, that's, this is before, you know, cell phones and social media and texting and that kind of thing. And and, and he was right. Uh, and Jack Buck called me and Jack said, you know, your life will never be the same again because 100 years from now, uh, when uh, people reflect upon you and your career, uh, the words Hall of Famer will always be in front of your name. And so then we go to Cooperstown and, and um, I was really fortunate because uh, Sparky went in the same day and so did Tony Perez. Uh, Carlton Fisk was the only non-red who went in that same season, that same year, 2000, July of 2000. And I was backstage and they were announcing, you know, all the Hall of Famers that, that typically show up for the induction weekend. And they come out and take their seat. And I was I was uh, slotted between Tom Seaver and Gaylord Perry. And I it's the only time in my life that I thought I was going to hyperventilate. Uh, I've never had a problem being in front of people and uh, and talking. And for some reason. This this whole Hall of Fame thing came crashing down on me, and and I thought I was going to need somebody to produce a paper bag so I could breathe into it. And and had it not been for Seaver and Perry, I they, I don't know what would have happened. They got me uh, they got me calmed down, and and uh, everything went well after that. But it was uh, it's a very I tell people I've only been back twice since I went in in two thousand. Uh, but it's it's a, I, I tell all kinds of baseball people that, you know, if you've never been there, uh, you really need to go. I three or four years ago, I took 
three of my fraternity brothers from college and their wives up there. And they just rolled out the red carpet. It was, it was such a cool, we were up there for two, three days and it was just spectacular. Um, and I would highly recommend it. Anybody, if you're a true baseball fan, you got to go there at least once because it's a very, very special place. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, Marty, I, I just want to say I really appreciate you coming on and, and all the fun times we've had, our relationship. Uh, truly, yeah, well, it was a pleasure. Laugh. It was a pleasure doing this and, and really gives, gives the fans out there listening to the Boom Podcast a, a different perspective from the booth perspective uh, from a Hall of Famer. So I just want to say this this was a pleasure. This is a lot of fun. Well, I appreciate sure. Be sure and tell your dad and mom I said hello, and, and and certainly tell Aaron, give him my best. I definitely will, and give Amanda a hug. What we what we do here at the end of the Boone Podcast is uh, we have a question from the fans, and the voice of the Boone Podcast, Dan Levy, presents the question. Dan, you there? I am the voice of the fan, Marty, and I got one special on, one Dan. for you. All right, you ready? Bring it, Dan. All right. I'm ready, big boy. All right, I'm going to throw it down the middle. Okay. What what advice do you have to give for future broadcasters who want to get in the business, who want to do play-by-play, and who want to get a start in doing this business? What tips do you have to give to those up-and-comers that want to learn how to do it the way you did it? Well, you know, I think it's one of the toughest professions to break into. When I graduated from North Carolina in 65, it was hard as a Dickens to find a job. Um, and I think it's equally tough today. Uh, but once you get a job, uh, if you have any ability at all, your talent will take care of the rest uh, more often than not. I, uh, I tell young people, you know, you got to be willing to go anywhere in the country to, to get that first job. If somebody in Missoula, Montana has a position open at a thousand watt radio station, uh, you've got to go there. You've got to take that. You've got to go somewhere. Uh, preferably uh, on a small scale where you can get good at your own rate because they're not paying you enough money to be good right out of the chute. Uh, If they were paying you an exorbitant amount of money, then their scale of expectation would be very high. But paying you what you're going to make at a small radio station, they can't dictate that you be good right off the bat. And, and, and given the time to grow and improve and do the things that are necessary to become a better broadcaster, uh, you're better off if you're not involved, if you're not, you know, you're not close to getting married or you're married or you're engaged because if you're free and, and, and don't have to be concerned about anybody but yourself, uh, that's a leg up. You got the rest of your life to get married. Um, but you try to make a, an inroad into a career that you hope will result in, in whatever you want it to be. I mean, if you want to be an NFL announcer, you want to be an NBA broadcaster, whatever the case might be. But as I said, the toughest part is getting a job. Uh, I, I highly recommend going to school uh, after high school. I, I, uh, I went to a great broadcast department at the university of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and, uh, they helped me get a job out of school. Uh, most of the schools have a placement department and they will work to get you placed if, if they can help you in any way. But, uh, they're, they're essentially the same, the, the things. And, um, I, I think it's a, as good a profession as there is on earth. I, uh, I, I thank God that 
I had some ability to get into the business and then grow as the years went by and get to a spot that I never, ever dreamed I'd ever get to. Uh, in a great city, uh, many times I've had the opportunity of leaving, and every time I had to make a decision, I stayed right here. So I would, well, I would, I would uh, recommend this business to any young person who has the interest in it. You just got to hang with it and stay with it, and don't get impatient because if you're good enough to move, eventually you will, and you'll move up. Marty Brenneman, thank you so much for joining us here on the Brett Boom Podcast. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it all a lot. Thanks, Marty. All right, Bob. Mailbag. Okay. You know that sound. That means it's time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. You ready to roll? Ready to do it. All right. Let me go ahead and uh, dig in here. The first one comes from Jose in Scottsdale. Brett, have you and your brothers ever played on the same baseball team? Uh, no, we're years apart. In the big leagues. Aaron and I played together in 98 the entire year. But coming up as kids, never, because we, we had that uh, four-year block between myself and Aaron, and then my youngest brother, Matthew, is 10 years younger than me. So uh, not until the big leagues. <laughs> and were you guys cool with each other? Did you get on each other's nerves, or were you all pro? Well, Aaron's always the, the younger brother. You know how that younger brother thing <laughs> is. But uh, no, actually, it was very professional. Uh, when we played together in '98, once we took the field, it was uh, it was all business. It was third baseman, second baseman, and the nice part about it is, you know, we we'd have some brother time after the game, and you know, dinner on the road and, and stuff like that. But no, it was it was all business when we took the field. All right. Laura in Cleveland wants to know who is the best dressed player in baseball. See, I got to go with with my generation. So this from from ninety two to two thousand and eight. Yes, it's got to be Reggie Sanders, wow. teammate of mine in Cincinnati. Always dressed to the nines, and and it didn't matter if it was uh, in the morning in his hotel room. If I knocked on his door, he he was going to open the door and have some glorious robe on with custom slippers. Best dressed man, Reggie Sanders. All right. And the last one. What is the stupidest thing you've ever spent money on while you were playing? That's from Brian in the SLC. Rolex with diamonds on it. You know how some guys just aren't watch guys? Yes, I do. That's me. That's me. I'm not a watch guy, but I got to the big leagues and I thought, oh, I've got to have a Rolex with diamonds on it. That's what all big leaguers do. And and after a while, I realized that that wasn't my uh, that wasn't my thing. And and I think I sold it for probably half what I bought it for. Isn't it always funny when you think to yourself, I just spent a lot of money just to tell time, and there's clocks everywhere. Yeah, and I'm not saying, you know, there's nothing wrong with a Rolex with diamonds. It's just for this guy, uh, it just wasn't my thing. Just wasn't my thing. All right. That'll do it. Reggie Reggie, Reggie Sanders would have rocked it. (laughs) That'll do it for the mailbag segment, and that's going to do it for this podcast. And, again, if you want to go ahead and reach out to Brett and send some mail questions his way, do it on Twitter. At the Moon Twenty Nine, that's where you can follow him and shoot him some messages. And he's also on Instagram and Facebook. Go ahead and follow and friend him and shoot him a DM if you'd like. And whatever questions you got, it'll show up on this podcast. Again, we want to thank Marty Brenneman for joining us here on the show. For Brett Boone, my name is Dan Levy. 
This has been the Brett Boom Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Later, everybody.